Good morning. We're going to be continuing in what Jeff launched last week, and that is uh, a several-month journey through what's known as the travel narratives. And as Jeff explained last week, it starts in 951, and there we see that uh, there was a turning for Jesus. It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, speaking of his resurrection and then ascension back up into heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, his disciples and followers and the crowds that were around him, they wouldn't necessarily have understood why that was happening, what was going to go on there. Everybody had ideas about what Jesus was doing, but we know what Jesus was doing because we have the whole story. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he was going to Jerusalem, to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sin so that people could be brought back into relationship with God. Now, what's interesting about Jesus being God in the flesh, it's interesting to me that he never intended to make that journey alone or even to fulfill the mission alone. He always intended to involve others, broken, flawed, sinful, fallen people who simply were willing to trust in him. He always intended for that to happen. And we see it unfolding. If you go back to Luke 6, we see God in the flesh, Jesus choosing a group of 12 men from all his disciples. He calls them apostles, which means sent ones. Then in chapter 9, at the beginning of that chapter, we see the disciples, the chosen 12, become the sent 12. He sends them out to do some ministry. And they come back and there's some great teachable moments there. And then now as we get to chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus expanding the circle beyond those first 12 disciples. He's going to involve 72 disciples who are outside of that, that close-knit group of the 12. He's going to give them instructions about what they are to do in relationship to him and in relationship to the culture around them. Now, these instructions serve as the foundation for everything else that's going to follow even up to today. So these aren't just ancient instructions. These aren't just things that applied to the 12 or to the 72 or to the early church. These apply to us today, perhaps in some different ways. This is a different culture. This is a different time. But certainly, uh, we are following in the story that began in the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 says this. Jesus was telling his disciples before he goes to heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You. You will be my witnesses. You will be the ones who tell the world who I am, what I did, and how to respond. You will be my witnesses. So we're going to look at a pattern for helping to fulfill the Great Commission, which is really just God's people 
acting like witnesses. Now, how many of you uh, grew up on Sesame Street? A few of you? Yeah, okay, several of you. So today's message is sponsored by the letter P. It's going to help you remember. Hopefully, you'll get this pattern of proclamation. We'll make our way through. This is the how of the mission. We're just going to follow right through beginning in verse 1. The first step of fulfilling this mission is to pair up. Look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now notice this is the Lord's operation. He is appointing, he is sending, he's going to do some instructing, and then he's going to do some assuring. So this is his mission, his operation. It's going to go his way, and it's going to involve these other disciples outside of his close circle of 12. There's 72 These are genuine followers. He's not just sending out anybody, but these are people who have been following closely with him. They're not the 12. So they don't have the same knowledge, experience, training. They truly aren't as close to Jesus as the 12 are. And yet, notice, Jesus is sending them out just like he sent the 12 out. So maybe... You don't have to be one of the 12 to be sent. Maybe he can use anyone he pleases, even you, even me. Now, these men are going to go out. They're going to go ahead of Jesus. So they're going into towns where Jesus plans to visit, and they're going to prepare people to meet Jesus. I love that as a way of describing how we share our faith. Think about it. You're not calling people to you. You're not introducing people to you. You're introducing them to the Savior. You're preparing them to meet him. And when they meet him, it changes everything. So that's what they're gonna do. The the idea here, maybe the takeaway, is that disciples of Jesus, which these guys were, are messengers for Jesus. And those two ideas cannot be separated. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a messenger for Jesus. They just go together all the way. It plays its way out all the way through the New Testament. Notice Jesus sends them out two by two. And I think we have to assume that that wasn't just by accident. It wasn't just haphazard that he had some intentions for doing that. For me, I I just have to think, Doing it by myself, I can last for a while, but eventually I can be my own worst enemy. But if I've got somebody with me, it it really does change my perspective. Um, When we're facing ministry, facing opposition, facing difficulty, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to cut corners. It's easy to compromise. We can talk ourselves into anything. It's easy to become prideful when things are going really well. We can begin to get our ego involved. And we can most definitely be deceived. If you don't believe that, you're probably already in trouble. 
Jesus sent his men out two by two as a safeguard. So I'm gonna ask you some application questions throughout this message, and my first one is this, related to this idea of pairing up in ministry. Ministry is a team sport. We say together is yes, all the time. And so here's the question. With whom are you actively doing ministry? Notice, I'm assuming that you're doing ministry. So are you doing it alone? Or are you paired up with somebody who's in it with you, who can encourage you and sharpen you and challenge you and support you and you them? That's the pattern. That's how Jesus set it up to happen in real life, in real time. Secondly, he urges them to pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Verse two, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's kind of sobering to think about the enormity of the mission. And for them, I think for the disciples, it just would have been like they thought of their little region and we're gonna reach our little region. But Jesus has the whole world in mind and not just in the first century. But now for 2,000 years, like the harvest is plentiful. There's a whole lot of people, billions upon billions of people who need to be reached. The harvest, it's gigantic. And the laborers are few. I used to think that there literally just weren't enough laborers. Like just you look around and it's like, yeah, we're just shorthanded. I think in our day, the issue revolves around unwillingness. Perhaps we could say, willing laborers are few. I mean, think about how many of us know Christ. And yet, are we engaged in this plentiful, abundant harvest that God is fulfilling? He doesn't tell them to work harder. He doesn't tell them to get tough. He says, pray earnestly. Ask God to bring laborers into the field. I think two things happen when you do that. First of all, you become mindful of what really matters most, the harvest. Like when you're praying about that all the time and you're asking God to bring in some laborers to reach people for Christ, guess what you're thinking about? Reaching people for Christ. Your mind is on the mission. It's a priority. But also, you become attentive to God's calling in your life. See, when you're praying for God to raise up laborers and send them into the harvest, guess who he calls first? You, you become the answer to your own prayer when you're praying. So he says, pray earnestly. And that's where ministry begins. You you pair up, you get in partnerships. It's team ministry and then you pray. You ask God, order our steps and raise up the laborers to get it done. That's the pattern. 
Now in my own life, my prayerfulness is always proportional to my awareness of need. Here's how I know that. When do I pray most? When the wheels are falling off, right? When life is hard, when I'm suffering, when I'm not getting what I want, man, I can pray my guts out. But when things are going great, when everything's going my way, when my day is just without any problems at all, isn't it easy just to coast? Jesus is saying, listen, guys, whether you see it or not, realize it or not, feel it or not, the harvest is plentiful. There are millions of people that need to hear about Christ and will respond to him. But the laborers are few. Pray your guts out. Ask God to do something about that. And then be ready for him to use you as well. Here's a great application that's right in front of us. Jeff mentioned the 12-week growth plan. Let me give you something to pray about. How about that right there? I want to dare you to pray 30 days straight. We don't... Don't even have to do 12 weeks, 30 days straight, get up every single day, get on your knees and say, dear God, raise up laborers for your harvest. Send them in and send me in and see what happens. I think it will change your life. I really do. And I think it will change this church. Para, pray earnestly, pare down. Verse three, go your way, Jesus says. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, nor knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one on the road. This is one of the more confusing parts of this sending. There's a lot here that just seems kind of confusing, maybe inconsistent with what it seems like Jesus is trying to do, but, but what I love about this is there's no surprises and there's no sugarcoating. You know, so often ministry is portrayed as just this sweet little fun journey of life and it's just always uh, bunnies and butterflies. And I mean, it's just like, listen, there is no harder way to live in a world that is under the rule of Satan than to do ministry. You're always opposed. He, he is gonna stand in the way all of the time. So let's not paint it up to be something that it isn't. Now there's no better way to live. I promise you that. But it is challenging. Look at the way Jesus describes it, lambs in the midst of wolves. What do wolves do to lambs? <laughs> they eat them. That's, that's the reality. That's the world in which we live. We shouldn't expect the world to be our greatest fans. We should expect opposition all of the time. But that's okay. We get to bring this great news, the gospel, good news to a world that is far from God. That's what we get to do.
And it's gonna be for this little blip in all of eternity. And then we get to spend the rest of eternity with him. So while we're here, he says, pare down, cut back, be a minimalist with your stuff, with your life while you're in, uh, on assignment, in mission. It is interesting to me, it, it, he tells them not to carry a money bag or a knapsack or sandals. It's like, what's going on there? What's the deprivation thing? You know, why doesn't he give them spare provisions? I mean, that would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, if you're out there and you're facing the, the tough battle, it'd be great to have kind of some extra resources to carry along with you just in case the, the going gets tough. We find out why he did that in Luke twenty two thirty five. We'll get to this in, I think Jeff said 2035. Um, but uh, Luke 22, Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So, it wasn't just asceticism. It wasn't just to give them a hard time to toughen them up. Jesus wanted them to experience in a very tangible way God's provision for them when they could not provide for themselves. And what would that do to their faith? It would build it, it would grow it, it would strengthen it. Alistair Begg says this, if dependence is the objective, then weakness is the advantage. How do we reconcile this idea of greeting no one on the road? I thought these guys were on mission. I thought they were supposed to be telling people about Jesus. What, what's up with that? Well, it's interesting. Um, as they're traveling about, in this culture, in this day, greetings could be very elaborate. I mean, literally, they could go on for a very, very long time. And so the idea was they're going somewhere. They've got a destination, a town that Jesus is going to visit. They're a messenger on assignment. And so to stop and literally greet every single person along the way it would take them forever to get where they need to go. It's not to diminish the importance of the individual, it's just to say, my king sent me. I'm on assignment. I have a job to do and I gotta do that. I cannot get off track. I cannot get distracted and pulled away. So he's basically saying, stay on task. Don't be unkind, just stay on task, go to where I am sending you. There is an interesting corporate focus to this passage. I'll get to this in just a minute. But because of the urgency, it seems like Jesus is really drawing their attention to a community, a town, a city over the individual. Again, not to say one is better or worse than the other. It's just a different methodology. It's a different strategy that complements any kind of personal evangelism that they might do. So in light of this bigger idea of paring down, of focusing in, of reducing, here's the question. 
What is one thing that you can do without in order to depend more fully on God's provision? The biblical concept of fasting really lines up with that really well. It's just the idea of I am going to deny myself something so that I can focus on something more important and receive from God whatever it is he wants to give me. Pair up, pray earnestly, pair down, and then present peace. Verse five, whatever house you enter, so they come into the town. When you enter a house, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Now, when I first read these passages years ago, it sounded a little bit mystical, like you come into this house and you utter this big grand blessing, peace be upon this house. And then something kind of magical happens and you start seeing stuff flying around and something called peace, like rests on this person. If they're a person of peace, you get what I'm saying. I I think it's actually much more practical than that. It's very real and it is very spiritual. But I think this is what he was getting at. When you come into a house, you utter a blessing. a a blessing of peace, which would have been kind of equivalent to Hebrew shalom or wholeness. So you walk in and you're offering shalom, peace. And the, the owner of that home, they're either gonna be receptive to that or not. So if they're a person of peace, if they get that, if they resonate with the idea of God's peace, God's wholeness, God's blessing, they'll say, come right on in. If they don't, they'll say, no thanks. We're all full today. And they'll send you on your way. It will return to you, your blessing. It'll just be rejected. So very practical. When people opened their hearts to the gospel, they opened their homes to the messengers of that gospel. And if their hearts weren't open, then they rejected them. If the homeowner welcomes the disciple, the disciple stays and the blessing or peace of God stays with him. And if rejected, the disciple moves on and the blessing goes with him. That's really literally what was happening here. Now, once disciples found that home base, once they found a place where there was a person of peace who invited them in and offered to provide what they needed while they worked ministry in that city, then they were to honor God's provision for them with contentment. That's the next part of this section, verse 7. Jesus says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Now, this is kind of funny if you think about it. These guys are on mission. They've been sent by Jesus. They come into this town, they find a house, and they get in there, and then they start to look around. It's kind of like, man, this this place is kind of rough. Wonder when the last time they cleaned this place up. Like just bread tonight? Is that like is that all you got? See what I'm doing there? Jesus is saying, listen, guys, 
I am your provider. And if you get a house of peace, just say thanks. And whatever they put in front of you, whatever it is like, just be, just be grateful. God Almighty has provided for you. And it may not be all that you want, but it will be all that you need. Don't go from house to house looking for better accommodations. Be thankful. I mean, it would communicate to the owner of the home. If you went down the street, because they got a little more stuff, they got nicer digs, better food, what do you think that says to that person who earnestly, genuinely opened their home to you? It'd be kind of offensive, I would think. Our danger here, I think what Jesus is addressing is letting our desires, which we all have, become demands. Where we begin to feel entitled, like I deserve better than this. Rather than just saying, you know what I got is enough. I'm gonna be thankful. I'm gonna make the most of it. I am going to be a blessing in this place. Because you know what? Maybe God brought me here, not for me, but for them. That's a change of mind, isn't it? It's a different kind of perspective. So the disciple here is to assume that personal reception on the part of the host represents God's provision for them. So their gratitude is really ultimately directed toward him. So here's the application. How are you more focused on better circumstances or accommodations than you are on offering peace with your presence in an attitude of thanksgiving? Where are you really focusing your attention? I can relate to this. When, when things aren't happening as quickly as I would like, when I don't have what I want, I can become fixated on that and forget that my greatest aim what God has called me to do is to be a blessing. That's what Jesus is focusing on here as a pattern for proclamation, and that's where we go next. It's interesting, these other things that have come before proclaiming truth, they're really heart preparation for gospel proclamation. So we're not just delivering the mail, just like dropping it in the mailbox and moving on. There is a heart thing that's going on. And when we are sharing our faith, that heart comes through. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to do this heart work, get your, get your mind right, so that when it, when it comes time for you to proclaim truth, you can do that effectively. And that's where we get to verse eight. Whenever you enter a town... Notice now there's a shift away from the household to the town. When you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom 
than for that town. So as I mentioned, there's a shift away from households to towns, and this isn't to suggest that salvation is a corporate thing. No one can believe or not believe for anyone else. All of us are individually responsible for placing our faith in Christ. But Jesus is still directing their attention to a community. And so the, the, the thing that it seems to convey is what is cultivated in a community does affect people's perception of the kingdom of God. And so when the kingdom of God, which is represented by the people of God, enter into a community, they are actually either cultivating a right understanding or not about this whole idea of God's good news of salvation. And so it is possible for a community to reject the kingdom of God, not just an individual. And the more that is allowed to just kind of continue without any kind of confrontation of, uh, like of any form, it allows that community to become dead lifeless where a town was receptive the disciples were told to graciously participate in table fellowship that's the thing of just eat what's in front of you they're they're called to heal the sick and proclaim the nearness of god and that was just to continue cultivating this idea that there's something bigger going on than just our little lives our little circumstances but where a town was unreceptive, the disciples were told to wipe the dust from their feet. And that would have been a sign to that community. They would have done it like on the square. They would have gone right there and said, listen, you guys are hard hearted. We represent the kingdom of God. So God has come near, but you have rejected him, not us. You've rejected him. So we're going to wipe the dust off our feet to communicate to you that you are going to remain far from God. And then we're going to move on to the next town. And that has consequences. There's some sobriety here about what happens when truth is proclaimed. We're kind of in this day where it's just like, if we know stuff, that's, that's just good enough. You don't have to believe it. It doesn't have to affect your life. You don't have to act upon it. You just know it. You're just like for it or against it. You like it or you don't. These disciples were called to enter into a town and to live in such a way, act in such a way, speak in such a way as to call that community to a decision about how it would relate to the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't a real popular thing in our day, is it? Like, I just, I feel sometimes like culture as a whole pats us Christians on the shoulder and says, man, you guys are nice little people. Go over there and do your little Christian-y thing. It's fine. Just don't bother us. And here's what's happening. Our cities are going to hell. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus says here. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, like this is where Jesus had his home base before he started making his way to Jerusalem. Will you be exalted to heaven? No. You shall be brought down to Hades. Hell. That's a real thing. That's not just some kind of science fiction idea. That there's eternity in the balance. And Jesus is saying, when we live as light in a community, when we don't go off in a little corner and just do our little holy huddle, we allow our cities to go right on that road to destruction. He's saying, I want you to stand in the way. They may kick you in the face, stand in the way. Verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And you can maybe better interpret that, the one who listens to you, listens to me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. That's what's really important here. It really doesn't matter, you guys, if the world rejects you and me. That has no significance at all for their eternal condition. What really matters is what they do with Jesus. The one who rejects Jesus rejects the one who sent Jesus, God the Father. These woes are brokenheartedness on the part of our God. But it's also a warning that this is a real deal, you guys. Ultimately, Jesus was assuring his men and us that our role in his plan is consequential. When you and I share our faith, when we do as the 72 did and the 12 did and scores of believers have done ever since, we join God in his redemptive plan. And it's not popular to talk about decisions, crossroads, I love what Pastor Greg Gilbert said. I'll finish with this. The doctrine and reality of hell actually throws the glory of the gospel into sharp relief for us. It makes good news, good news. It helps us understand just how great God really is, how sinfully wretched we really are, and how unutterably amazing it is that he would show us grace at all. Moreover, the reality of hell, if we don't push it out of our minds, will focus us above all on the task of proclaiming the gospel to those who are in danger of spending eternity there. How is your heart for those who are far from God? How is your heart for our city? Could our church be a church that shines the light so bright in our city that it calls it to something better?
than materialism. How is your heart for the world? I'm going to give you a few moments to ponder some of those application questions that I gave you and those questions as well. I mean, this isn't just, this isn't a club. This isn't some kind of program. This is the pattern for proclamation that Jesus established with his closest circle of men and then he began to expand it outward. And now we're in that circle. We get to participate in the most beautiful, redemptive plan earth has ever seen. Ask the Lord what kind of part you ought to be playing in that.